welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the latest edition of Arbitral Insights. We have an interesting topic today. We're going to check in today on the USMCA one year after its passage. That is, of course, the United States, Mexico, and Canada Free Trade Agreement. And there have been several important developments, but today we're going to focus our attention on the energy sector and the disputes sector. And we have two supremely qualified experts in this field to help guide us along the way, and I'll do my best to stay out of the way. First, we have Hugo Perez Cano, and Hugo worked for the Ministry of Economy for the government of Mexico for nearly 20 years. He served as Mexico's Trade Remedy Authority as the head of that, and he also served as the General Counsel for International Trade Negotiations. He was the lead counsel for Mexico in multiple NAFTA claims, as well as WTO claims. And many, including Professor Gantz, who you'll hear from today, says that Mr. Berescano has more experience in this field than than just about anyone. He was also involved, in fact, in the actual negotiations of the NAFTA treaty. So we're very excited to hear from him today. We also will hear from Professor David Gantz today, and he is the Will Clayton Fellow for Trade and International Economics at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in the Center for the United States in Mexico. Also, the Samuel Ferti Professor Emeritus at the Rogers College of Law at the University of Arizona. He is a prolific writer. He's written six books, and the latest is particularly relevant. It's called An Introduction to the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, Understanding the New NAFTA, and that's Edward Elgar 2020. He's written over 75 law journal articles and book chapters, and he has served as an arbitrator on multiple proceedings under NAFTA Chapter 11, 19, and 20. So that's our distinguished panel today. And with that, I'd like to move into the first section with Hugo Perez-Cano to give us just a brief background about the treaties. First, let me ask you, Hugo, let's start with NAFTA. Tell us very briefly what NAFTA was. Thanks, Will. It's a pleasure to be here with you and David and share some thoughts with you. Well, the first thing I'll say is the NAFTA was a free trade agreement. It created a free trade zone where goods move freely between the three NAFTA countries, Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. So no duties to import or export from one country to the other no matter how many times the goods cross the borders between the three countries, there are no other restrictions to trade. And in general, imported goods are otherwise treated the same as domestically produced goods. So they're subject to the same taxes that domestically produced goods are and other regulations. So for instance, if in Mexico, there is a value-added tax on domestic goods. That is the very same tax that applies to imported goods. 
Same thing, for instance, in terms of labeling requirements for textiles or nutritional information. The same requirements that apply to domestic goods apply to imported goods. If that's a general feel for what NAFTA was, tell us what the USMCA is. Well, generally speaking, when Trump campaigned for the presidency in the United States, he said that the NAFTA was the worst agreement, the worst trade agreement that the U.S. had ever entered into. And we all recall that. Nonetheless, the USMCA largely preserved the NAFTA. So for the most part, the NAFTA is preserved in the USMCA. What about some of the key differences? What are some of the key changes? There are some important changes. There are some positive developments. What I'll say were positive developments. So, for instance, it incorporated many of the enhancements. Let let me uh, take a step back. When in the 2010s and thereafter, there was a, a lot of talk about enhancing and upgrading the NAFTA. And a lot of that went into the negotiations of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which was a U.S.-led negotiation. So that agreement was concluded and signed by the Obama administration. And we'll recall as well that Trump pulled out of that agreement as well. But what the USMCA does is that it incorporates many of the enhancements of the TPP, for instance, it incorporates E-Trade and the enhancements that over time had occurred to labor and environment. Brings them in as chapters. Previously under the NAFTA, there were side agreements. And of course, throughout the years since the NAFTA was entered into, there were many changes to labor and and environment. And the, let's say, the most up-to-date version was incorporated into TPP. And then from there, it jumped into the USMCA. There are other changes that are probably not as positive. For instance, one of the major changes was rules of origin for autos, and those were made much more strict. What that means in practice is that it increases, well, the rules of origin require more production to be done domestically in the free trade zone in the NAFTA countries by using goods or materials produced in the free trade zone, that increases, because these are, especially the U.S. and Canada, higher wage areas, this increases the cost of production. And it may, over time, we'll still have to see how that plays out, that may, over time, reduce the competitiveness of North American autos as compared to autos produced elsewhere. Well, let me me ask you a question coming off of your comment about how it affects the auto industry. Let me ask you, you know, we're coming from Texas on this particular podcast. So let me ask you about energy. Can you tell us a little bit about how the USMCA impacts in a a general sense, the energy industry? Like you were just telling us a little bit about the, the auto industry. Can you tell us a little bit about the energy industry under the USMCA? Well, certainly, but I'll focus on energy from the Mexican point of view, because that is the one I know better. 
And generally speaking, that was a major issue in the NAFTA that has changed and evolved over time into the USMCA. So I'll focus on that. In terms of energy, the energy sector has always been controlled by the Mexican government. The two main sectors in energy, oil and gas on the one hand and electricity on the other, have been dominated by or controlled by the Mexican government since uh, the 1940s when the oil industry was expropriated. Huge state-owned companies ran those sectors. So while that was a very sensitive issue and one of the uh, very few sectors where in the NAFTA there were some restrictions left in place or many restrictions left in place, for the government to be able to control these two industries as it had done for many years. What the NAFTA did was to lock in any future amendments, legal or even constitutional amendments, that liberalized the sector so that Mexico would not go back. And in 2013-2014, uh, uh, Mexico undertook a major energy reform, liberalizing both sectors, oil and gas on the one hand and electricity on the other. It amended its constitution. It produced a secondary legislation to implement those constitutional changes in order to allow for foreign investment, I should say first private sector participation, including foreign investment and foreign participation in those sectors. So what the NAFTA did really was to lock in those amendments, that liberalization in place, so that Mexico would not go back on it. So, Hugo, let me transition here. If that was the objective, how have things unfolded, you know, since we have the 2013-2014 energy reforms, but now Mexico has a new president with perhaps some new views on things. How have those objectives unfolded together? I would qualify your statement about the new president. I think that, yes, Mexico has a new president, but with old views on trade rather than new views. During the TPP negotiations and then later on the USMCA negotiations, energy was one of the key sectors because Mexico had undertook that liberalization on its own in 2013 to 2014. So it was important for the U.S. and Canada, again, to continue to lock in that liberalization. TPP did so. It contained annexes that provided how that liberalization was locked in and to go into the future. And that was also an important part of the USMCA negotiations. However, Lopez Obrador won the election while the negotiations were still in place. He was president-elect as the negotiations were winding down to an end. And he had uh, very different views, generally speaking, of the role that the government has to play in the economy as a whole, and specifically in terms of the energy sector. Lopez Obrador comes from an energy-producing state in Mexico, Tabasco, where there are important refineries and oil extraction. His views have always been 
that energy has to be run by the state. He always opposed, he campaigned before for the presidency. He always ran on a platform of opposing any liberalization in the sector, strengthening the government role in the sector, strengthening the state-owned enterprises in the electricity and oil and gas sector. And that is that was his same view when he was president-elect, and the negotiations were coming to an end. So what happened really was that for optical purposes, the liberalization that continued you know, to be a part, an important part of the USMCA negotiations that was taken out and referred to the negotiations of a newer agreement. It's uh, the CPTPP, which I forget the name, but anyhow, it's sort of the newer iteration of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, minus the U.S. after it had pulled out. So all of the other countries, including Canada and Mexico. And the energy liberalization was locked into the CPTPP and brought into the USMCA through a kind of most favored nation provision. So whatever treatment, whatever better treatment was given to anybody else in the CPTPP was extended under the USMCA to the US and Canada as well. And that was pretty much for optical purposes. I don't think that neither López Obrador nor, nor his lead negotiator, Jesús Ciale, at the time were misinformed. It was only for optical reasons. But López Obrador's view continues to be that this must be a state-run sector overall. And when he came into the presidency, that is where he has headed. So we've seen a first attempt a couple of years back to amend the secondary legislation to undo some of the liberalization. That was challenged in the courts, and those amendments are stuck in court proceedings. But recently, he tabled a bill to amend the Constitution and undo the uh, liberalization in many of not just the specific liberalization in the sector, but as well the broader reforms that were undertook in the larger context of the NAFTA to start undoing some of those. So, for instance, in addition to the NAFTA, Mexico undertook a, a very significant, I mean, regulatory reform and created independent bodies, regulatory bodies, independent from the government to oversee these sectors, like the Energy Regulatory Commission, the Commission on the Hydrocarbons. And part of what this new constitutional amendment intends to do is to terminate those autonomous bodies and bring all the control, the regulatory control, back to the government. So in addition to unwinding the liberalization, it's also going beyond in touching on the structure that was meant to keep sort of the government in check through independent bodies in these sectors. So while I don't agree with these reforms, I think they're perfectly consistent with López Obrador's view that the government has to play an important role in the economy as a whole, and specifically 
that the government, that energy has to be or, or has to continue to be or go back to being a state-run sector. Well, let me ask you one other question about the first phase of the USMCA here. It's been active or been ratified for a year. How has it performed over this first year? We have to preface that a little bit in terms of how the NAFTA performed over time, because 2019 was a sort of a bit of an odd year leading into an even odder year. I would like to sort of draw a comparison with the 20-year anniversary of the NAFTA. So just very briefly, and to put it a little bit in context, for instance, exports from Mexico to the U.S. had increased by close to 650% in the first 20 years of the NAFTA. Imports into Mexico from the United States increased almost or a little bit over 400%, reaching $396 billion again in that 20-year time. If we compare it to 2019, and this is really the year before the pandemic, we have to say as well that world trade had slowed down in the previous year. So, and of course, trade in the NAFTA region had also been affected by the slowdown in world trade. But still, Mexico exports to the U.S. had reached 380 billion U.S. dollars in 2019, and imports from the U.S. were at 210 billion dollars. U.S.-Canada trade is much larger. And in 2019, U.S. exports to Canada were over 580 billion U.S. dollars, and imports uh, into the U.S. from Canada were roughly around 320 billion dollars. After that, the world went into the pandemic, and world trade dipped. What is to be noted of the USMCA is that. Again, largely because NAFTA trade and NAFTA disciplines were preserved, trade picked up not at the same rate, but picked up significantly. So in 2020, by the first anniversary of the NAFTA, exports were down as compared to 2019, but they were still exports from Mexico to the United States, where at almost 350 billion and imports from the US at a little over 170 billion US dollars. I think I said million, it's billion in both cases. And again, while 2020 was hit by the pandemic in terms of US-Canada bilateral trade, uh, in 2020 exports from the US to Canada were around 510 billion US dollars at the first anniversary of the NAFTA, and imports into the U.S. from Canada were at $270 billion. So one thing to be noted is that despite the pandemic, the USMCA helped trade to sort of continue to recover somewhat quickly and to continue in its upward trend in 2020. Thank you, Hugo. That was very interesting. I want to bring David in and get his take on this. So, David, in a, in a moment, I want to ask you about how you've seen this friction between AMLO's 
concept of the government's role in the energy sector or in the economy versus some of the liberalization objectives of the treaties and some of the energy regulations. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. But before that, let's set the stage a little bit. Could you help us understand a little bit of the differences between NAFTA and USMCA regarding disputes? Sure, Will. And uh, let me say again that it's a, a pleasure to be discussing these issues of great economic importance to the U.S. and Mexico with my good friend Hugo and the two of you. One of the areas where major changes were made in USMCA is the area of investor state dispute settlement and investor protection. And I should point out that the impetus from this came not so much from Mexico as from the Trump administration, where the general belief was that if you give American companies protection against takings and other actions abroad, they're more likely to move American jobs and investment abroad. But there are a number of major changes. First of all, under the USMCA, the concept of investor state dispute settlement between the US and Canada totally disappears after three years. There's a three-year grace period that ends uh, June 30th, 2023. Obviously, if there are contracts that involve arbitral provisions in the contracts, international commercial arbitrations, those aren't affected. But the actions under Chapter 19 type provisions just don't exist anymore as between Canada and the United States. As far as U.S.-Mexico is concerned, USMCA sets up what essentially is a two-tier system. If you have a contract or an arrangement with the Mexican government or an agency such as Pemex, the oil and gas monopoly, or CFE, the electricity monopoly, ISDS provisions are generally similar to what you found in NAFTA Chapter 11. They apply but only to about five sectors, to hydrocarbons, to electricity, to transportation, uh, to certain infrastructure, and to communications. Then there's a second tier that covers everything else. And that's a significant step down, at least from my point of view, from Chapter 11. First of all, you must exhaust local remedies. Secondly, you cannot bring actions for arbitrary government actions, such as those that are protected under fair and equitable treatment. And third, and probably most important, you cannot protect against indirect expropriation. So we're only about 14 months into the USMCA. There haven't been any cases that have gone very far under these provisions. So it's much too soon to know how this is going to affect investment in Mexico and the rights of foreign investors. But there are obviously some concerns here that have been expressed by many observers. Excellent. Thank you. Now let's pick up on what, what Ugo was saying. He was describing some of the friction between AMLO's policies and some of the liberalization objectives of the various treaties. How have those frictions been manifesting in the disputes arena? There have been a number of actions by the Mexican administration that may well lead to serious disputes between the foreign investors and the Mexican government or even between the U.S. and Mexican government. More than a year ago, the Mexican government essentially decided that CFE was going to have a monopoly on clean energy, and it took steps which are going to make it much more difficult, if not impossible, for foreign investors in clean energy, mostly windmills and solar panels, be able to survive. And I should point out that there's 20 or $25 billion worth of investment, and much of it is from Spain and Italy, as well as from the United States. So the number of parties that will be upset about this is very substantial. 
those cases are still in the Mexican courts. And so far, the Mexican courts have been protective of the foreign investors. We don't know how far that will go, but at the moment, you can say that. Secondly, there have been, there's a dispute over one of the companies that leased, that bought leases in 2017 under the earlier energy proposals, where the development of the oil that was discovered was supposed to be jointly done between Pemex and the company. And then a couple of months ago, the government said, well, no, 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 Pemex is going to do the development. And the company has filed a notice of claim, which I assume is under the provisions in the lease contract, but nothing has gone so far further. Finally, a few weeks ago, the Mexican National Guard marched into a gasoline storage depot in uh, eastern Mexico, which had been in the business of distributing gasoline, most of which is imported from the U.S. within Mexico, and essentially took it over. So basically, those are all the friction areas we have seen at the moment. But it's again, as I say, it's too soon to know how those are all going to turn out. Excellent. What do you expect to see in the future? Do you expect to see these disputes that you just described unroll further, or do you expect to see another species of dispute? Well, certainly, I think the most significant ones are the ones that I have mentioned so far. And I am guessing that most of these, if they're not resolved internally, if there isn't some sort of a negotiated settlement, which I think Hugo's observation suggests is unlikely, but it's not unheard of, will end up in some form of investor state dispute settlement, either under Chapter 14 of the USMCA, under international commercial provisions in the agreements, uh, and probably under the bilateral investment treaties that Spain and Italy have with Mexico. It is possible, it is feasible, that this could become a matter of a concern by the U.S. government and bringing an action under the government-to-government dispute settlement provisions. At the moment, the Biden administration doesn't seem very concerned about any of this. At least that's the impression that many of the Mexican officials have gotten. Their major focus on U.S.-Mexico relations up to now has been on immigration issues, admittedly a serious problem, but not very much on these investment concerns. And if, if that doesn't change, I guess the investors are going to feel that they have to do it all on their own. Well, thank you, David and Hugo, very much. So we've had the USMCA you know, active for a year. A good percentage of that has been impacted by COVID-19 and the pandemic. But what I take from both of your comments is that there is a lot to unfold here. That Things are going to be resolved in a very important way in the near future, and we haven't quite reached those resolutions. Gentlemen, I thank you very much for your insight on this. Why don't we give it another year and we'll check back in? How about that? Good idea. Thank you both very much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you, Will and David. Thank you very much for listening to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights. I invite you back to our next episode, which will come out soon, and I'm sure it'll be quite interesting. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. 
Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.